0: LinkedIn presents...
1: I'm a human, I have my own stuff going on. Um, And just because I'm a leader doesn't mean it goes away or it's handled or it's easier for me to handle. And I think that's the the premise of the book is kind of twofold. It's to help people understand that we are all humans and we should, you know, there's this quote that's attributed to Walt Whitman that I really like, but it's not, Walt Whitman didn't say it. Uh, It's be curious, not judgmental. And I'm like, if we went into every interaction like that with somebody who we might, you know, initially be on the defensive with or the offensive with and just like, ask questions to seek to understand rather than judging quickly. And we're, we are hardwired to judge as, as human beings. And so think, think through that, but also leaders are humans too, and you don't have to, you can be vulnerable. Vulnerability, it's scary and it exposes us, but it is something that really can deepen or strengthen or create a new relationship that you would not have had unless you leaned into it.
2: That was human first leadership advocate, Paul Wolf. And in this episode, Paul and I discuss his background and experience taking Indeed from 1,000 to 12,000 employees, what he's learned across a range of HR leadership roles, his new book, Human Beings First, and what it means to be a human-first leadership advocate. We also get into a shared experience we didn't know we had about losing our mothers in our 20s and how that shaped our outlook on life. And we'll be back with all of that and more,
0: right now. All right, let's say you're a company looking for a strategic partnership to help you transform your people operations. You know you've got dozens of options out there, but here's why Amplify is the best one. Amplify consults and advises on what it takes to build modern people teams, from the kickoff to weekly update meetings, to interview coordination and every step in between. This helps them clearly understand your work style, culture, and needs so they can be a deeply informed advisor throughout the engagement. And they understand the complexity and profile of a modern people executive because they're embedded in that world. Founder Lars Schmidt has spent over 20 years working alongside chief human resources officers, building next-generation HR programs, and working with companies like Forbes and Fast Company. These days, with everything moving at lightning speed, nothing is more important than clarity and simplicity. Cut through all the noise with Amplify.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Redefining Work podcast. I am your host, Lars Schmidt. Today, I'm joined by my friend Paul Wolf. Paul is a CHRO multiple times over. He is a leader in the HR space. He is an author. He's a podcast host, and he's a really solid guy. And I'm really excited to spend the next half hour with him talking about his career. So, Paul... Thanks for coming on, man. I'd love to have you just open with a uh, intro for the audience. Great.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Lars. You know, I I followed your work for years uh, when I was on the corporate side, and now that I'm not, I, I follow it more to get to get inspired by it. Um, I'm a human first leadership advocate. I spent a bunch of years at a bunch of different companies running HR. Um, Lastly, indeed, for almost eight years, I've been helping them grow from a thousand employees to 12,000 employees and revenue at the same time. Um, I left at the beginning of last year and uh, decided I was going to write a book called Human Beings First. And really, it's focus and the, the work I do now is focused on helping leaders understand that they're humans as well. And they don't need to be an imposter. They don't need to, you know, they can't be, they, they don't need to be concerned about having their employees see them sweat or not having an answer or having a mental health challenge or some other life challenge. like We're all human beings. That's what my book is about. We're all the same in that way. Um, And I think leaders that are more vulnerable and make sure that people are seen and heard and, and can see themselves in a leader create a more encouraging environment, more loyal employees, more productive employees, a better kind of work unit, if you will. So I'm kind of on this path of how can I help make things better for more than one company, more than one group of leaders in talking to them and helping them think through things, um, advising some companies and a little bit of everything. I guess my whole career kind of like all together now.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's a long path and there's a lot of different elements in that path I want to get into, but I want to start at the beginning and i mean the beginning, the beginning, you know, take me back to your childhood. Like what was, what was young Paul like? Oh
1: God. Um, so I am an introvert, um, big time. I will flex into an extrovert for conferences or if I'm speaking or things like that, but then it it kind of sucks the energy out of me. So I got tagged in school as being like standoffish and aloof and kind of stuck up, which was not the case. Um, I was, uh, my parents got divorced when I was very young, four or five years old. My mom was a school teacher in, I grew up in Miami, Florida. Um, she taught in the same school for 32 years, made far too little money, just like teachers do today. So if there's ever a time that, you know, I can talk about teachers getting paid more, I take the opportunity. So I just made that plug. Um, I came out as gay when I was 15 and that wasn't a really popular thing in 1982 in Miami. Um, and, you know, it was fine at 2 a.m. It doesn't define me. It's just, it's a chapter in the book of Paul. Um, sadly, my mom was killed when I was 25 and I, in a car accident, uh, like a mile from our house. And they always say the worst accidents happen close to home. So I've lived that. I think that change my perspective in general on things. Like I'm not gonna miss an opportunity to take a trip or take time off. You know, we talk about self-care and PTO and people not taking PTO and leaders need to mirror that behavior and show that behavior so their, their teams mirror it. Um, that's never been an issue for me. Like I, I I do that. I think it's because I was, you know, at 25, realized like, shit, I could be gone tomorrow like my mom was. Um, and I wanna have a, you know, good, good life no matter how long or short it is. Um, you know, I don't know. That's that's it. Uh, I I went to University of Miami for a year on a full scholarship and quit. And my mom did not appreciate that. <laughs> there was some, some pleasant uh, exchange of words between the two of us, but I just, I don't know. I think it. she expected, and this isn't a dig on her because I appreciate this part of her now that I'm an adult, um, you know, A's, if there was a B on a report card or on a term paper or something, there was a long conversation about it because she was an educator and it was so important to her. And at that time, college was important. I think it's still important today, depending on the field you're going in. I don't think it's as important or it shouldn't be as important. Um, but I got through that and then I finished school and, um, I ended up becoming a head of HR after being a head of customer service. So I didn't grow up in HR. Um, and then we get to, you know, 20 something years of doing that. And here I am today chatting with you.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We, I appreciate you sharing that. And, um, I appreciate you sharing that about your mom specifically. I think I I was uh, 25 when I lost my mom as well. Her wasn't suddenly she'd been battling multiple sclerosis for over a decade. I'm sorry. Um, so it was a gradual process, but it was, you know, it's interesting hearing you describe that. And I, I can relate to it in the sense that it, I think when you're young and 25 is still pretty yeah. young, certainly if you're younger even, but I think then you're, you're an adult, right? Like you're, yeah. you're a young adult, but you, you're an adult. You kind of know you're still figuring out who you are, but you have a sense of who you are. Um, and that experience, that kind of unique uh, trauma to go through does give you an outlook on life that uh in time at least for me I learned to really appreciate you know the fact you mentioned you know you'll you'll take the trip you'll you'll take the PTO this uh you know I don't want to use YOLO, but I guess, you know, it's, it's a broad audience. So why not? We'll throw it out there. I mean, YOLO, right? Like no, tomorrow's never guaranteed. It's very you you true. never really know. And it, there's a certain freedom that comes with that. Like there's a lot of pain and I don't want to dismiss any of that because that's absolutely real. But I think on the other side of that, there's this, there's a bit of this freedom and this different outlook on life that I don't think people who haven't experienced that trauma and loss can appreciate or understand or even connect to in the same way, and I'm wondering if you felt the same way uh, through that tragedy uh, on your end.
1: And no, I, I think I think you're right. You do a good job of describing it. Like you don't like there, there's the there's the 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 sad and bad part of it, and we all figure out ways to to deal with that. Um, oddly, mine is especially when it when it was more recent, talking about what happened, kind of in detail, and that was my way of compartmentalizing, like getting through it. Um, but I think that as I, you know, at first you don't know what, how it, how it impacts you. Cause it takes a while and you got to get through the trauma of what just happened. I was an only child I lived at home. Like we had a great relationship, you know, it was like, it, it was. It's interesting being older now. My husband unfortunately lost his mom during COVID, and his dad just a year ago, um, a couple days ago actually, and um, they were both in their eight, late 80s, early 90s, and it's it's different, but it's still a tra. It's still sad. Like death, sadly, is is part of life. Um, but I think about you know he with his mom. He was battling. It was during COVID, the peak of COVID, and he was like battling back and forth about do I go. They lived in Columbus, Ohio. We live in New York. Do I go? Do I don't. I'm like, I said to him, I said, his name's Drew. I said, Drew said, if you don't go, I will go. I said, because if I got the opportunity to spend 30 minutes with my mom before she died, like that would be Golden, like I'd give up a lot if I had that opportunity. I'm like, you yeah. got, you know, she was not in hospice yet, but on the way there. And we knew it wasn't much longer. And I said, go. And he's like, but I'm like, drive, it's nine hours. Like it's fine. Like we can quarantine. Like we'll figure it out. Because we it was, you know, we didn't know a lot. It was March of 2020. So it was the beginning of all this. Um, and he did it. And he's like, Thank God. Cause he got to spend the last 10 days of her life sitting with her. He, they talked, they, you know, he, he were not very religious. His mom and dad were very religious, they're Catholic. He said the rosary and prayers. And even though she wasn't maybe responding facially or with words, you know, she would squeeze his hand and stuff like that. So I, And then I think it's, you know, I, the, the other thing I think it did for me is my mom was not a risk taker. Part of the reason I think she taught in the same school, doing the same thing for 32 years. She loved it also, but she wasn't a risk taker. And I don't, I look back and I think somebody asked me the other day, I was visiting a friend and she's like, do you think you would have written the book or left, you know, a full-time job with a a guaranteed paycheck because I don't have one now. (laughs) Um, if, you know, your mom were still alive and I'm like, I don't know. I do think the risk taking calculated risk taking changed a little for me too. Um, I also think it makes you a little bit or it forces you to be a little bit more mature. 25 is still, you're a young adult, but it forces you pretty quickly to become a bit more mature than other people your age because of like what you're going through and faced with and just like even the financial part of being the executor of an estate and all that stuff. Um, I don't know, you know, I'd give everything back to be happy, to be flipping burgers at a Burger King if my mom were still alive today. Um, You know, that's what I always say to people. It's like, and, and you, you know, people who, you know, you'll hear sometimes like, "Oh, I don't know if I should go home i I'm like, go, like go, because you don't know what tomorrow like for any of us what tomorrow is
2: yeah yeah I, i'm that's such great advice, so I'm glad that you steered you in that direction because again, that's time if you wouldn't have done that, that would have been just gnawing in him, I imagine for you know perhaps the rest of his life, wondering if that you know if 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 only he could have gone and like again, you never get those moments back, and so I think uh right. you know there's something about. There's something about the perspective you gain in losing a parent when you see other people who, you know, they, they, they have their parents and hopefully everybody, you know, not everybody does. But like, obviously you want everyone to have both parents. Um, but when they, you know, and they kind of have those moments of like, ah, you know, I don't really want to go over there. I don't want to do that. Just like. Just go. You can. Yeah. Like Just you go. can. So, so go. So, yeah. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. I actually didn't know that we had that. I did not well, know it so. either. and we, are we yeah. something
1: I, I know something more about you. I love this. Yeah.
2: Um, okay. This is going to, this is going to feel like whiplash because that was a, that was a heavy moment. Now we're going to the other side. We're going to go to to a lighter moment. I mean, you've had, you know, I followed your career. You've, uh, you, you walked through, you know, obviously, you know, the hyper growth at Indy, you've, um, spent a time through a range of IAC companies, which is kind of where we connected back in the day, looking back over your corporate career, what role did you have the most fun in?
1: Um, I think when I was head of HR at Match.com for a couple reasons. Um, It was, so I was there from, that was an ISE company. I was there from 2003 to 2007. 2003, Match was not a pop culture norm. Um, It was, people were still squirmish about online dating and looking for love online and all of that. And that started to change. And then midway through my time there, we got a new CEO who I just reconnected with a couple weeks ago um, after like not really, you know, casually chatting on LinkedIn and stuff, but for 15 years. And I didn't remember until I, we did a Zoom um, that I wrote about him in my book <laughs> and I didn't use his name. It was an example of how sometimes uh, one very specific thing about how not to be a human first leader. <laughs> <laughs> and we were we were talking and he's a sweet guy we were talking and he's like so he's like i think you're referring to me on page 102 <laughs> i'm like oh wow. and it he's all that down came like back a to me. swift I'm like, song that oh was, my god uh, that's impressive um, yes but he's like i think it's a fair representation he's like i've grown since then it was it was good he's a, he's a good guy but when he came His first comment to me in one of of our meetings was, so you're the person that hires and fires people for me. So I'm like, all right, like that's one end of the spectrum. Like, let's talk about it. And I think in the two years that I was with him, because I went to another IAC company after that, I was asked to go to another IAC company. Um... He moved on that spectrum to realizing, like, hey, this guy, like this is an important role, and like we need to involve him in these conversations. It was butting heads at first, but we kind of got into this decent rhythm where he basically called me about everything, which is kind of what you want at some point. Um, the 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 thing, the re- the other reason I like that job the, the most is we I was given this project of building a new office for indeed, which You know, it's not typical of a head of HR. I've had a real estate report to me since then. But this is the first time I actually got to. And his vision was, you know, your grandmother's house meets the 21st century. So this is like 2003, 2004, 2005. And I'm like, all right. And he's like, you know, it's got to be in the city because we were way out in the burbs. And he gave me, it was like your project, you run with it. Of course, I see Tom McInerney was the CFO at IAC at the time. And so there was a budget involved. If anybody that knows Tom is listening, you know, there's always a budget involved. Um, and we went through that, but it was, it was a really interesting experience. It gave me a lot of like uh, appreciation for what the workspace is like and what that environment is like. Not that I didn't have it, but I think I was looking at it through a different lens. So that's probably like the two-year period that I enjoyed the most. I mean, Indeed is... Indeed, the storied chapter, because um, it was you know seven and a half years, going from a thousand people to twelve thousand people. First HR leader at the company, it was nine and a half years old, and kind of building it basically from scratch. And hiring all of those people only using Indeed, no other, there was no, there were a couple retained searches here and there, but there was no other, there was no LinkedIn recruiter or no zip recruiter or no anything else. And so that was, um, that was also a, a, an exciting and interesting time. A little, you know, crazy to go, I, I refer to it as the perfect, perfect storm because... We were, we were going through hypergrowth, growth. Um, and sometimes when companies do that, you see a degradation in culture, an uh, uptick in attrition, and we luckily didn't see any of that. And I think a lot of it's the mission. We help people get jobs. You can you know, get everybody rallied around that and they understand that. But I think those are the two, the two high points. But I, I liked everything I did for a variety of reasons.
2: Okay, I wanna, I wanna take you back to Indeed. This, this question can apply to any of those seven years that you were there. Uh, looking back on that experience, with the benefit of hindsight, especially thinking about leading them through, obviously, the the level of scale that you did. What are two things you got right and one thing you got wrong?
1: Oh, my God. Uh, I would say two things I got right, paid transparency in June of 2018 uh, was one of the best things that I ever like bit the bullet and like did and slogged through, even though peers and managers and leaders in the company were like, this is never gonna work. Um, we were ahead of the curve. It went off pretty flawlessly. Uh, A lot of um, assumptions about mass exodus were not, none were true. Uh, So it was, was, that that was, that was good. Um, I think the other thing is unlimited, or we called it open PTO, but unlimited vacation. It's an easy thing. It's not, and and we approach it from the perspective of who hasn't taken time off and why versus how much time are people taking? There's a lot of conversation about unlimited vacation. I think if you approach it in the right way, it is a good thing. Um, One thing I got wrong And I probably, this changed early in my time at Indeed, but I think I grew up in an era of HR leaders where everything had to be perfect before you pushed it out the door and let anybody see it. And I, you know, probably two or three years in, I'm like, we have to use a product approach to this. We've got to put an MVP out there. We've got to put some metrics out there and some boundaries and beta test it and like, just be honest with people. Like, you know, we don't know if this is going to work, but we've spent a lot of time and including the client and individual contributors and leaders in the process, Um, which is, you know, I I am a big fan from an HR perspective as as if I go out and I talk about HR and kind of how to debunk HR, how to like, you know, Think about HR from a blank sheet of paper. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes that employees and leaders have no idea about that they should. I think everything could be easier if there was more transparency just in general in HR. So that's the one thing I think I screwed up early on that I kind of figured out uh, partway through my time there.
2: Yeah, I think I might call that like a lossish win or a yep. winish loss. I'm not yeah. really sure how to frame that, but that you know, because again, I think the legacy of HR it, it was about you know we have a playbook, we have a process, we have to pilot, we have to test, we have to roll it out in a very controlled manner. I mean, the the idea of bringing a product mindset into HR is relatively new in, in the long history. It's so much better
1: and so much easier. Like, it yeah. is just like, it. Like I remember the first, I forget what we were working on where I'm like, okay, let's use this brush. My team kind of looked at me and I'm like, look, let's get some product managers in here to help us and help us think through it and how they do it. And that was like, you know, you look back on it at, you do the postmortem after you did it. And I'm like, this was so much better. There wasn't all this angst when you rolled it out. There wasn't all this lack of adoption. Like you're, you're buying adoption while you're involving them in the process and throwing ideas out at them. And it's, I just look, I, I think it's better. It's easier. It's more collaborative. And you get a, I think it it helps build a stronger relationship between HR and the employees or functions, whatever it may be.
2: Yeah. Well, I want to kind of go back to your Ticketmaster days. And I see, as you mentioned, we, I think we just missed each other. Yeah. I think maybe you you had just left just I before a I couple joined, weeks, but yes. it was within like, yeah, like a very narrow window. Um. And, and looking back, uh, you know, for me personally, Ticketmaster was the most fun place I ever worked. It was an amazing company, an amazing team, an amazing growth trajectory, a fun industry. Uh, it was my first leadership role. It was the first time I built a team. It was a lot of firsts for me. So I think that that, that experience will always have a really uh, fun place in my heart. And that team will always hold old if I mean, I'm still in touch with a lot of people from that team. Um, looking back, like what was your, you know, your, your, your ties were the before days uh, before I joined. So like what was Ticketmaster like when you were there? What was your kind of fondest memory? Gosh,
1: <laughs> there's a lot I want to say, but I want to be, <laughs> I want to be uh, good about it. Um, I, so if you think about companies, if I think about companies that I want to work for, that I have worked for, I wanted to work for a company that had a good, had, had strong consumer sentiment. Uh, positive <laughs> yeah. consumer sentiment, which Ticketmaster did not have at that time. Not positive, um, but yeah. We also I, I got there through a series of acquisitions by our friend Barry Diller at IAC that had, you know, invested heavily in City Search, which was a company I worked for before Ticketmaster, and then decided to buy uh, Ticketmaster, own 75% Ticketmaster. And then he got this brilliant idea to take Ticketmaster.com and City Search public together, but left the rest of Ticketmaster sitting over to the side. So we went public as TMCS, Ticketmaster Online City Search, a big mouthful, um, which was interesting taking a co- company public in like an eight-month period. In This was, I think we went public in 2000, early 2000, late 99. Um, and then he got the bright idea like, oh, let's put all these companies that we bought, because we bought Match.com and the One and Only Network and Reserve America uh, you know, Evite, City Auction, all these things, some of which still exist, some don't exist any longer. While we were at City Search, and then he's like, "Oh, we have all these companies now, and like let's put them all together under the Ticketmaster umbrella." So that's how I got to Ticketmaster Corporate. It wasn't a, I was looking for a job there. It was also a little weird because City Search had a head of HR, it was me, and Ticketmaster had a head of HR who had been there for a while. Ticketmaster was also a thirty thousand employee company because of that time. You know, at this point, it was like May of 2000, I think. Um, Lots of call centers, ticket agents taking calls, ordering tickets and Macy's counters and things like that. It wasn't the Internet as we know it today. And so he and I did a good job of putting our teams together because he had some holes and I had some good leaders and we kind of like made that work. And then nobody would really make a decision about the two of us. And I finally went to the city search folks that I worked for and said, look, like, I'm happy to tap out. I don't think I want to be the head of HR of a company with big call centers. And the reason I said that is I grew up in call centers and I understand the HR challenges of running of employees in a call center. Typically, I'm being stereotypical now. And so, you know, they're like, oh, no, no, you, you, you need to stay. And so then he and I just we went to lunch one day and I'm like, let's just figure this out. And so they didn't have a learning and development group, and they had nobody really looking at the international side of Ticketmaster—the UK, Canada, and Australia, which were joint ventures for them at the time. And I didn't have any global experience; I was only a U.S. you know U.S. HR leader. I'm like, okay, great. So like, like, let's figure that out. The the thing that sticks with me the most there are, and I will I agree with you. There were a lot of great people that worked at Ticketmaster. A lot of them I still talk to. Bringing HR teams together—it was a little. Bumpy, bringing two companies together, a dot-com company that lost a lot of money and a ticketing company that made a lot of money, but whose technology was held together with Scotch tape and duct tape. There was a lot of oil and water and meetings because we would get pointed to and like, well, you're the people that lose $20 million a year. We make, and you know, Ticketmaster at the time was printing money for Barry Diller. And so there was a lot of that angst going on. So it wasn't, I don't think it was the, I didn't work there at the best time. Um, The the one negative thing that stands out to me is We get there, we move from our office. We were at City Services in Pasadena. At the time, Ticketmaster was in Koreatown, Wilshire and Western in LA, not on Sunset Boulevard where it is now. And um, we, you know, somebody somebody comes down and gets me on our first day, me and the the, the HR team I had. We get taken up to this suite of offices in HR and there's a space for all of us, you know, cubicles and offices, whatever the case may be. But it was behind this locked door because we shared a floor with the, uh, like technology floor. So all of the servers and everything were there. And so I was kind of like, I kind of let, you know, I was getting through my first day and trying to get the lay of the land and trying not to piss anybody off because we were in their home, you know, you're trying to be, and like, on I mean, my second or third day, I asked somebody like a ticket master, HR person, I said, so I said, if an employee wants to come see an HR business partner or somebody in HR to talk about something in a space outside of, you know, their floor, wherever they may be, how do they get here? Well, they can't because we only, only us and technology, our key cards can get into this floor. And I said, so, you know, they'll call and we'll go meet them at a conference room on the floor. I said, but what do they want to talk about their manager? They don't want their manager. I I was so, so anti-people I was just like, oh my God. And so what I ended up doing was like, I like found a desk on some other floor and I like my office was there. And like, if I was having a meeting with HR folks or whatever, I do it there. But most of the time I would be like hanging out and I think I got it on the city search floor because I felt comfortable there. So that's the one I was like, this just doesn't make sense to me. The positive thing was just the people that worked there who were even the, the ticket and and the oil and water thing went away after a while. Like we all figure like it's it's this is what it is like we don't have a choice anymore. Um, and so kind of leaning into that and understanding that and learning more about that business and just the amazing like I remember Terry Barnes was the CEO. He became the chairman, although we weren't public. I remember I interviewed briefly with him like when we were bringing these two companies together and it was a very nice conversation. And I remember spending time with him and just the – he was so amazing at building relationships with artists who can be cantankerous, challenging. They adored – This man, they adored the ground that this guy walked on. It's not like it is today with the Taylor Swift, you know, stuff going on. Like there were blips and it wasn't, you know, we weren't selling tickets as much online, certainly as they are now, but there were times where stuff would happen and somebody would get their nose out of joining and and Terry would go in and just fix the problem because that's who he was. And he had these stories that were insane of parties he's been to. It was just like, it's just meeting people like that and hearing how this company was this little ticketing company that grew into this behemoth. Um, and then I think as time went on, because I was there for, I was there from 2000 to 2003 in the combined company. And then Diller got the broad idea like, oh, let's create a, you know, online dating vertical. Let's create a ticketing vertical. Let's create a retail vertical. And so then we all split out again. And that's when I went to match.com. Um, but it was just understanding kind of their relationships with these artists and what they do, and then going to see. You know, everybody like, oh, you get tickets for free. Like, no, we pay a full price for tickets. Um, right. If you knew the person <laughs> that you submitted your form to to get a ticket, and you were friendly with her, sometimes you get a really like. I, I, you know, I was in like the second row to see Billy Joel and Elton John together at the Staples Center um, and stuff like that, and so you got to experience the, like these amazing you know, artists in, in a really great way. So I, like, I, I'm glad I worked there because of who I knew and what I got to do and what I got to learn. Um, it wasn't a company that I, like that's the one company I would not put my business card on my luggage. Because like at Match.com, it was like, you'd hear the flight attendant while well, you tell a story, I met my boyfriend, my husband, we're getting married. You know, you would go get ticketmaster that I had it on for the first like couple weeks. And you hear these horror stories about service fees and like seats not being their obstructed view. And like, I'm like, I'm taking my, my business card off my luggage because I don't wanna like in a confined environment have to be forced in these conversations.
2: HR leaders today are under immense pressure to deliver results for the business navigate new social and business climates, and build adaptable people programs built for these dynamic times. We're often asked to do more with less. The new world of work requires new ways to learn and develop our capabilities as HR and people practitioners. The Amplify Academy was built from the ground up to help people leaders efficiently and effectively connect with diverse learning needs for today and tomorrow. The Amplify Academy provides you with highly curated resources, exclusive content, courses and a community designed to help people leaders effectively support your organization and each other. There are two components to the Amplify Academy, the Amplify Academy Learning Lab and Community and the Amplify Academy Leadership Development Cohorts. The Learning Lab and Community includes an AI learning platform that includes a range of courses, resources, templates, presentations, reports, and more to support the learning needs of today's HR and people practitioners. The Learning Lab subscriptions also include access to the Amplify Academy Slack community, a purpose-designed community to help you build your network equity and connect, collaborate, and grow your network with peers around the world. The Amplify Academy cohorts are four-week immersive peer learning programs designed to help you build the leadership skills and network you need to lead successful teams in the new world of work. Cohort students learn from world-class guest instructors with past instructors, including Katie Burke, Katarina Berg, Lynn Oldham, Pat Waters, Claude Silver, Nellie Peshkoff, and so many more. Want to supercharge your people team? be sure to check out the Academy for Teams product. It's designed to give your people teams access to all 450 plus resources in the learning lab and build their network equity in the Slack community, as well as their leadership ability in the Amplify Academy cohorts. You can learn more about all of this at amplifytalent.com academy. Now back to the show. I mean, the amount of times you had to get cornered into describing the economics of ticket fees and charges <laughs> and what goes to the artist And I'm just like, I, I'm like, I, I feel like I'm a spokesperson yeah. for ticketing economics. Yes, so, yes. yeah, I can relate to that. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate the, you know, the story and the kind of uh, the walk down memory lane. Uh, let's fast forward to today, you know, so human first leadership. I know this is really where you've been focused on. Obviously, it's the core principle of your book. What is it? How, how do you describe it?
1: So it's, it basically is just, the, the premise is, the universal truth is we're all human beings, and that's the one thing that makes us the same. No matter what we look like, what color our skin is, how we talk, how we dress, who we're married to, who we love, whatever the case, you can add any D I M B category in there, we are all the same because we all need food and water. You think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but we're, we are all the same. I think for a long time, like I, I worked at GE during the Jack Welch era, Early in my career, and I was lucky enough because I was in a rotational program to attend four different classes at Crotonville, like the storied GE University, if you will. And I remember, like looking back on it now, after I've written the book, I went to a leadership class there. It was kind of this two-week thing. Everybody in this in this rotational program went to it, and I look back on what they taught us, and basically they taught us to be an imposter. They taught us to never let them see you sweat, always have an answer you know, don't, it wasn't really about collaboration and team building and like, and, and and granted this was like, you know, the early 90s. So it was a little different era, but it was, you know, I'm a human I have my own stuff going on um, and just because I'm a leader doesn't mean it goes away or I, I'm I'm it, it's it's handled or it's easier for me to handle and I think that's the the premise of the book is kind of twofold it's to help people understand that we are all humans and we should you know there's this quote that's attributed to Walt Whitman that I really like but it's not Walt Whitman didn't say it uh, It's be curious not judgmental and I'm like if we went into every interaction like that with somebody who we might you know, initially be on the defensive with or the offensive with and just like ask questions to seek to understand rather than judging quickly. And we are hardwired to judge as, as human beings. And so think through that, but also leaders are humans too, and you don't have to, you can be vulnerable. Vulnerability, it's scary and it exposes us, but it is something that really, can deepen or strengthen or create a new relationship that you would not have had unless you leaned into it. And the book is just a lot of examples of either things that I did or that I saw through the last 25 years at companies of how people have led with a human first approach. At the end of the day, I think those are the companies and the leaders that are going to win. Like it's interesting. The landscape is interesting today with these. I, I, uh, have made some posts on LinkedIn in the last few months about this forced return to office stuff, which I think is the most insane thing in the world. And, and you know, these are individuals or leadership teams, executives who make lots of money and have very different lives than the person who's an individual contributor. And they're, they're making these decisions and it's like it's impacting everybody differently. And I don't think they're thinking through that. Um, and I think if you think and, and think about, employees as humans first versus employees. And that's a mind shift because for so long as an HR leader, it's like they're employees. And I think COVID helped help me understand it better because we were all like, like this zooming into, you know, all these people's houses that I had never seen before. And you saw, like, I see your skateboards on the wall behind me. There was art, there were dogs, there were kids. I met a grandfather. I was doing a multi-skip level one day with an HR coordinator. She was at her parents' beach house and there was a grandfather walking through and she was like mortified. And I'm like, oh, let's talk to grandpa. Let's find out a little bit about more about you that I don't know. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we're all humans and we all have, you know, Our own challenges and our own highs and lows in our life. And just because we we work someplace and we have a fancy title doesn't mean that that stuff goes away. Um we have to deal with it just like anybody else does.
2: Yeah, I mean it's so interesting. I think you know, certainly looking back to the pandemic um and how that I think accelerated, just smashing the archetypes of the infallible leader, right? Who said the right things and did the right things and was buttoned up and polished. And you know, now we're in each other's homes we've seen each other cry. We've seen each other's, you know, highest of highs and, and lowest of lows in a lot of cases. And I think it's brought a humanity throughout the workforce and and leadership included, which I think is really healthy. So I'm glad it's a topic that you're you're shining a light on and expanding um, in terms of obviously you get into this in the book and you kind of make the connection around building more empathetic leaders. And, you know, there, there's something I'd love to get your perspective on, because I think you know, I, I struggled. I, I created last year, I created a, uh, like a model for, um, success drivers for a chief people officer. And it had different traits, uh, or skill sets or experiences that I felt were essential for success in the role today. Um, and the one area that I got hung up on a little bit was, uh, empathy. And I ended up choosing not to use empathy and I used compassion instead. And my reasoning was, I think that there's you know, there, especially going through all the trauma that we have collectively as you know as humans over the last couple of years, there, there's this expectation sometimes that that h r always has to lead with empathy. And you know, I, I started to push back on it a little bit because I'm wondering, you know if we're you know if we're in a position where we're carrying our own stuff and we're expected to carry the emotions of all of our employees in every scenario. And I'm not to say you shouldn't have empathy, you absolutely should. But it should be selectively, applied where there's some scenarios where you're being empathetic. And there's some scenarios where you're being more understanding and compassionate. But if we kind of set an expectation that all scenarios are empathy, you know, that to me, I just saw that as being a cause, uh, an a accelerator for burnout and just some of the the struggles and mental health challenges that we even have in HR leadership. So, you know, I know this is an area that you go deep in and I would really love your perspective because I, you know, that was just my, initial reaction, I think, to some of the conversations that were happening around empathy at the time. I don't know that that's right or wrong. That was just my view. But I would love to get just your perspective in terms of, you know, how you think of the role of of empathy, specifically for for HR leaders.
1: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think you're right. And I agree with you. Um, and I think sometimes people use the words interchangeably. But you're. I, I think that the challenge has been in the, the pandemic, I think, did a lot of good things. Um And hopefully companies and leaders will figure that out and and how to pull those through to the other side. I think there was a lot of like shit and crap that went on that was like, you know, I remember Q and A's, you know, talk about transparency. I remember Q and A's like the first couple of weeks where, you know, we, at that point we had probably 10,000 employees and, you know, our CEO, COO and I were on every Wednesday, um, depending on, you know, we did a multiple for, for EMEA, the U S and APAC. And it was like, yeah, you were chief doctor, chief, science, chief scientist, chief nurse, and I'm like, there's no data. Like that was my, one of our values that indeed was being data-driven. I'm like, there's no data. So like our overarching principle is the health and safety of our employees. So that's how I make every decision. And so when they would question a decision, I would just go by like, if you think there's a safer or healthier way, I'm happy to listen to it, but there isn't. And I think that, you know, that as a leader starts to show vulnerability and other things. But I think the thing that HR, I was talking to somebody, who's a a, a new uh, chief people officer at a small company here in in Manhattan uh, the other day, and they were talking about how their team is burnt out. And I said, well, that's not surprising because there's three years of a pandemic, basically, that everybody leaned on HR for. And that's not, it's not that it wasn't our job, but we didn't, we were going through the same thing. And I think this is where HR leaders and HR people in general need to think about themselves and self-care is so important. Like, you know, I go back to if I wanted to take PTO, I take PTO. And I get that there's never a good time. If you're an HR leader and you've got multiple projects going on, it's like that's always the excuse. It's like you have to take care of yourself because if you take on everything from all of your employees, which is part of, you you got to be compassionate or empathetic depending on the situation, but it's part of the job to listen and you're dealing with humans. So that's, you know, once you get more than two in a room, you're going to have a disagreement at some point and you're going to have to mediate and deal with that. Like, you know, somebody asked me, what was it like going from being, I was a VP of customer service to VP of HR. I didn't grow up in HR, like a lot of people, uh, HR leaders did. And I said, look, I said, customer service is active listening, problem solving, a little bit of mediation, a little bit of empathy, compassion when it was needed, a little hard line when it was needed. And like a lot of that's the same in HR. Like you learn, you know, somebody asked me early on, like, well, what if I on my team at CitySearch, because that's when I made the transition, what if I need to know it was a payroll manager? What if I need to know about this specific labor law in Wisconsin? And I said, well, I said, I would go to our legal team who are phenomenal, and I would ask them. I said, and if they didn't know, we would go to our outside labor council because I don't wanna memorize labor law because they change, like, and now they change all the time. <laughs> and like, you know, you <laughs> think about it, like and we started to go global, I'm like, I should not be the repository for labor law. Like that's just not, and she's like, our job is to interpret it and figure out how to apply it to the situation. But you've got to take a set subjective approach to that because you're dealing with people, and that requires subjectivity. And so I think, I think you're you're right. If they, if if you take if you lead if, if you do everything with empathy as an HR leader, you're going to burn out, and you're going to be like, I just I need to tap out because I can't do this anymore. Even if you're, I think even if you're taking care of yourself. So I think leaning in where it's appropriate with empathy or compassion or just understanding. A lot of times I've learned over the last almost 25 years, people just want somebody to hear them. Like they don't, they may not need you to solve a problem or they may just want to like get a lot of times if you go in, I got to solve this, I got to fix this, just listen and then see where you go from there. And sometimes you can't get to a solution and that's just, but it's enough that they actually, somebody actually heard them and understood their perspective. And so I think there are a lot of behaviors and emotions we have as leaders, HR leaders that we can use to make it a more human first experience for any employee, no matter what the situation is.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you talk about, you know, just the levels of burnout in HR. I mean, I think that's a huge issue that, you know, we've been talking about burnout, but I I don't see us supporting the field collectively with tools to address that. You know, it was interesting when we uh, uh, next week, well, when this runs, we'll have already completed it. But in early May, uh, we're running a new product in the Amplify Academy called an HR growth sprint. Uh, And the aim is it's a two week kind of peer learning program that Uh, really kind of refreshes everybody on the fundamentals of modern HR and the new world of work. Um, But then there's also a sustainability uh, component to it, because I want to give the students uh, tools to better practice self-care and self-preservation and learn from each other and understand uh, just mechanisms, develop the tools and mechanisms to be able to, you know, because I'd love to say that we're, you know, this period of volatility we're going to, we're going to, we're going to turn that hill and it's going to be back to smooth sailing. I don't think it is. So if that's the reality that we're in, we need to develop skills. We need to to learn how do we effectively manage our own, you know, energy, time, emotions, uh, in a way that allows us to stay in this field. Uh, and so I would love to see, I'm going to, some of the the resources we're developing, I'm going to be open sourcing as well, because I think you know, the, the field just needs more tools uh, and guidance to help us with that because that's not something that is typically part of any kind of HR curriculum or developmental programs or hypo, or anything. So, you, you'll,
1: you'll occasionally like see a breakout at, at an HR conference about self care and, you know, and stuff like that, but it's not something. And it's, I think all leaders need it. I think HR leaders probably more than others because of the things that we deal with on a regular basis, but you've also got to find what works for you. Like, I I started working with this brand and marketing company. Uh, like six or eight months ago, and they're very much into meditation and breathing. For the life of me, I cannot, like, I can't focus. I My mind doesn't turn off. I have found if I go out, and we're lucky, we have a we have an apartment in the city, but we also have an, a house about an hour north of the city with some property. If I go out and watch the birds eat out of the bird feeder or the squirrels interact, or we've got a lot of, like, wildlife all of a sudden— um, that I can turn my brain off and just watch, and then my mind I'm thinking like, what are they thinking? Like, what are they saying to it? They're kind of in a comical <laughs> way, but that's my time to to zone zen out and kind of like just disconnect. And I think everybody's got to find what works for them. So the more tools, the more shared experiences from other people about what they're doing and how they're doing it. You can, you, but you gotta find your own because it's also interesting to me. You know, for a long time, we talked about work life balance, work life balance. And like, I would call bullshit on that even when we talked about it. Now it's just life. You know, people will say work life integration. It's just life. And work yeah. is a component of it. And I think the leaders and the companies that are going to do best by their employees are those that allow them to do what they need to do to live a good life while they're being a good employee. And that may mean I'm going to, you know, work early in the morning and take a couple hour break because I've got, you know, kids at home, or I'm going to go pick them from school, and then I'm going to be back on later in the evening. It's about managing the body of work, not the day-to-day tasks that somebody is doing. And I think that's going to give people, one, hopefully take some stress away, and two, give them the ability to manage, you know, they're adults. For the most part, we're hiring adults, so let them be adults and make their choices. And if they're not, that's a separate conversation. But I think that's, those are the leaders and companies that are going to you're, they're gonna find the most loyal employees and 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 loyal people to them because they're allowing them to live their best life.
2: Yeah. No, I I agree with everything. And um, and I will have no additional content. Comment. I'm gonna give you the last word on that. Um, the human beings first, your book. Congrats, it's out. Uh if redefiners out there want to get their hands on the book, uh, look at it. You, I mean come on. I that's, gotta that's have one A running, plus you marketing know, I gotta right target whenever have...
1: I can, whenever I get the chance.
2: Yes, you got to. Okay, well, where, where is the best place uh, for people to find the book? Uh, Amazon, the book, any online say. retailer, uh, book
1: retailer, um, paulwolf.com, Wolf with an E on the end. You can buy it on there. You can even get a signed copy on there. You can't get a signed one on on um, on Amazon, but it's out. Um, it's been out for almost two months now. It's
2: exciting. Okay, well, that's exciting. Well, congrats again on that. Get your hands on the book. Uh, we all need to learn more about human-first leadership and uh, Paul will head you in the right direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Paul, it's been fun uh, going down memory lane in some cases and learning more about, uh, you know, commonalities we have in your background as well. Um, we close every episode of the lightning round to help the uh, Redefiners get to know you a little bit more. So we always start with music. What was your first concert? <laughs> Paula Abdul. <laughs> Paula Abdul. Okay. Okay. All right. Was that, was that the Emilio days? The Emilio Estevez days? Uh, was, I, mean... I
1: think it was before Emilio. It was probably okay. like an 80...
2: 87, 88. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It was early Paula. That, that is very Paula. early. I, I like it. I like it. Um, next question for you. What is bringing you joy lately? Um, I think having the pandemic and
1: not working, having a full schedule every day. And my husband, you know, he, he works for himself and he travels a lot. He just got back to traveling, but we got to spend three years together. Um, And we've been together 28, so (laughs) it's not like it was new, but like three years where we were not missing each other by like a couple hours on flights or things like that. And it's like lunch and dinner and breakfast and and being with the dogs, we have three dogs. Um, I just think that's, you just get to, it goes back to, it's just life now. It's, you know, work is a part of it, but I get to enjoy life more um, because of, even during the pandemic, because I was forced to be at home. But now because of, you know, what I do, I get to be home more.
2: Um and last question for you you know there's a lot of listeners who are aspiring chief people officers um you know a role that that you know well what advice uh, do you have for aspiring CPOs? I think
1: I'll give you three quick things. Self-care, self-care, self-care. That's not all three. That's one, but repetitively. <laughs> There's a theme. Um, um, where do we get a theme it here? It doesn't have to be, it, every program doesn't have to be wrapped up in a beautiful box and a bow to push it out. Like use an MVP approach a product approach and beta it and get, get feedback. And I think the last is opening up a regular, like, two-way communication with employees not just an engagement survey or like a you know an ethics hotline like really leaning in and listening to what employees are going through i found for me that was i the, my entire time in indeed when i first got there i started with a bunch of employee focus groups i traveled to like seven or eight offices and did Employee focus was like a third of the population, about 350 people. I continue to do employee focus groups throughout my entire time there because getting 10 or 15 people in a room where kind of the rules are what's said in here stays in here, unless you tell me something illegal is going on. Like I do have to put my HR hat on for a minute. They they start to talk and they open up and it's like, I would ask the four same questions. What are we doing well? What aren't we doing well? what aren't we doing that we should be doing and describe our culture to somebody outside the company in a handful of words. And that, that was my premise. And I use those same four questions. I would, If I was another in another CHR role, I would do the exact same thing, but they are, sometimes there is this us and them mentality and it's like, they are your best source of information. They are, and if you build that relationship with them and they know they can come to you with stuff, like that is like the holy grail from a chief people officer perspective. So lean into your employees, they're your friends.
2: Well, Paul, I really appreciate the insights, the wisdom. Uh, Paul Wolf with an E.com, get your hands on his latest book. And uh, it was great catching up. Thanks so much for making time.
1: Absolutely, it's always great to talk to you, Lars.
2: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Redefining Work. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, and more, be sure to check out amplifytalent.com slash podcast. And if you dig this podcast, I strongly encourage you to share it with your CEO, leadership team, and friends to help others discover it. And if you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on Spotify or Apple or wherever your preferred podcast delivery vehicle is. We'll see you next episode.